The Voice. <laughs> Windsor. Windsor. Ascot. Ascot. Maidenhead. Maidenhead. Bracknell. Bracknell. Wokingham. Wokingham. Henley. Henley. Reading. Reading. Okay. Ta-da. The Voice. River Radio. Of the Thames Valley. Morning is turning pages here on River Radio. We'll be discussing some great books and our favourite reads. We'll be chatting with the author of a fabulous new novel based on the women who kept the RAF flying in World War II. And we're starting a new series, Tilly's YA Fiction Addiction. And it's down to the seaside for some salty favourites. morning you are listening to heather adams and julian ashton on um, turning pages over the next hour we'll be keeping you up to date with news from the world of books new releases bestsellers and recommendations of some great books to read thank you for joining us today We've got a great show coming up. We're being joined by Tilly Brogan for the first time, who's a huge fan of young adult and fantasy books. This will be the start of her new series, Adult and Fantasy, um, Tilly's YA Fiction Addiction. I've been chatting to author Paul Olufsen Stab, who will be talking about those books that inspire him. And both Julian and I will be taking you on a trip to the seaside and chatting about our favourite books with the Seaside Connection. Um, And once again, we've been scouring the papers to spot some interesting book news. Turning pages on River Radio, just in case you don't know you're doing it. The voice of the Thames Valley. And don't forget, we'd love to hear from you. If you have any favourite authors you want to tell us about, great book recommendations, or if you run a local book club or you're indeed a local author, we'd love you to get in touch. You can contact me on julian at river.radio with any of your comments and we'll be uh, happy to include you. Now, I, I, I give my email address out every week and nobody's written so don't be shy come along and send us a message that would be great so let's begin with a roundup of those interesting tidbits that we've spotted in the press about books and as we're talking seasides today i thought i'd start with the news spotted in the times that there's a planning fight going on around the agatha christie's mile which overlooks her favorite beach down in torquay Yeah, I I saw something about that. Tell us more, tell us more. Yes, right. Well, so the local council wants to approve a block of beach huts on private land overlooking somewhere called Beacon Cove. Now, this is the Pebble Beach, which used to be the ladies' bathing cove when Agatha Christie was young. And also the spot where at the age of 13, she went out swimming to a raft uh, anchored in the cove with her nephew and almost drowned. Oh, good heavens. We might not have had all those amazing books. Anyway, they, they both had to be rescued by the crotchety old man who managed the bathing huts. But well, we, good for him. Absolutely. And we'll just have to keep an eye on the, uh, on the press to see what happens about those beach huts. 
We will indeed. Well, it was uh, rather sad to see that the crime author Claire Dunkel, who wrote under the name of Mo Haida, um, has just died. And she was described once as the connoisseur of corpses. I mean, her books were the opposite of the traditional female crime authors, such as Agatha Christie. Her immensely successful books um, sold over six and a half million copies and winning several awards often feature her detective Jack Caffrey. And where she was different, they were always marked um, by a fascination with gore, putrefied bodies and stinking blood spattered all over the crime scene. Oh dear, they sound pretty Uh, high. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, Prior to writing, though, interesting, um, prior to writing these award-winning books, she did something totally different. And she was actually a glamour model, um, an actress appearing on The Two Ronnies, and also in Are You Being Served, to name just a few programmes she appeared in. Wow, that's amazing. (laughs) And also, um, sad to read of the death um, this week of the popular actress Eunice Stubbs at the age of 84. However, like Claire Dunkel, but in reverse, Eunice Stubbs enjoyed an alternative career as an author. Uh Um, She wrote, yeah, she wrote a number of um, uh, books on knitting, which was in fact her favourite hobby. But as well as being, um, as well as that, she was the co-author of two children's books, uh, one called uh, Fairy Tales with Graham Corbett and the other, A Dinosaur Called Minerva, which she wrote with Tessa Crayling. Cool, I didn't know that. No, exactly. I mean, yeah, it's one of those, and there's a hidden side to Una Stubbs. There's a hidden side to all of us, I'm sure. I'm sure that's the case. (laughs) Now, both Julie and I are sitting here with our spectacles on, and I spotted a great book that's just been launched called Through the Looking Glass, The Spectacular Spectacular Life of Spectacles, that's difficult Mm -hmm. to say, by Travis Elborough and published by Little Brown. And this is just an amazing book. It's the illuminating story. Did you see what I did there? Of uh, what must be... Nice little, uh, whatever they call it, you know, little link there. (laughs) Bond. No, yes. <laughs> so an illuminating story of what must be one of the most wondrous adventures, inventions in the world, which we just take for granted really nowadays, mm. don't we? So an yep. estimated four billion people globally wear glasses. And the story starts in the 10th century. There's an Arabic treatise called the Book of Optics. Gosh. And um, in medieval Italy, there's a sermon which suggests that craftsmen are making glasses in Pisa around 1286. Although I think... What happens? Yeah, I know, that's amazing. But I think Venice and Florence are also sort of muscling in on the... We were first on the... Uh, on the on old the spectacle market. Side. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> but what's also really interesting is that, you know, the arms of your glasses that hook over your ears? Yeah. Uh, they didn't appear until the 1720s. Um, really? Yeah. So, so it was always things that just sort of pinched on the nose or something like yeah, that? Yeah, pince-nez and... Yeah, um, oh, right. Yeah, how Gosh. amazing. You would have thought somebody would have just thought, oh, there's a good idea. Stick yeah. something round your ear to keep it on. Um, and also there's a marvellous chapter about glasses and sexuality. It's, it's calling it librarian porn. You know, that mm. whole whole idea of the take your glasses off and oh my oh. god you're beautiful <laughs> oh yes, yes. <laughs> in films and in novels <laughs> anyway it's a fabulous book and even though it does end with a, a pretty bad prediction that there's going to be an epidemic of bad vision as we spend all our time looking at our small screens our computers oh, and our phones oh no well i can only imagine that if i take my glasses off and try to be alluring i'd probably fall down the stairs <laughs> <laughs> you and me both <laughs> 
Well, um, well, I was drawn to an article um, about which I've always known about this because you know, Heather. I always say that any sport is dangerous, yes. and this article <laughs> is about the dangers of golf. Uh, and it was in the newspaper the other day, and it appears, according to another uh, golf fanatic, Ian Fleming, that the tenth hole at the Royal St George is the most dangerous of holes. Ooh. Well. So said James Bond during his grudge match against the international bullion thief Goldfinger. Um, The course um, is at Sandwich, um, which was meticulously described in the book, but as all golf aficionados know, in the film itself, it was the the, the, the course they used was at Stoke Park, just down the road from here. Um, And because basically Stoke Park was closer to Pinewood. But you have a little link with uh, St. George, don't you? Because your husband, Mike, went golfing um, on, on there a few weeks ago, didn't he? He did. I would like to say that he was in the open, but that would be a total lie, <laughs> as he's <laughs> well, only just started. <laughs> yeah, well, come on, Heather. Our little our little maxim is never let truth get in the way of a good story, exactly. eh? So he was in the open. He was in the open, absolutely. Well, was, well put it this way. He was in the open air. So there we are. <laughs> <laughs> right, now, getting serious. I was oh. reading a shocking report Uh, from Oxford University, which was based on, you know, the BBC Radio 2 500-word story competition Mm -hmm. that they do, which is a really fabulous competition. Masses of people, uh, masses of children enter it. But they researched, Oxford University did some research based on the uh, characters in the books that they were they were writing and it shows that because there's a lack of female characters in children's literature when boys and girls write stories they mostly use male protagonists which Gosh. is terrible so what they found is that up to when you're small when you're sort of five to seven mm-hmm. you're, you're writing about girls and then as you get more and more familiar with the world of books mm-hmm. you're finding that there aren't many um female protagonists and therefore you start writing about uh, about boys as the ah. as the main character so i Gosh. think parents and grandparents need to ensure the books that they buy for their little ones all have really strong female characters in mm. them. Come back, Pippi Longstocking. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, now, I've just uh, got a little snippet here, which is a a very interesting partnership coming up. The author, James Patterson, and the singer Dolly Parton have teamed up to write a novel about a young woman who comes to Nashville to pursue her music-making dreams. And it's going to be published in March next year. And it's called um, Run, Rose, Run. And Parton, Dolly's going to release an album of the same name alongside the book, which is going to consist of 12 original tracks. Um, She says the new songs were written based on the characters and the situations in the books, and their lyrics was also feature in the novel, which I think is great. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah, and I just just love Dolly Parton. I I think she's one of those actresses and performers that I think what you see is what she really is, this really lovely lady, really sparkly. And there's one thing, just a little little thing, I don't know if you've ever seen the film Magnolia, uh, Steel Magnolias, uh, where Dolly plays one of the parts and she's got a hair, a hair salon, which yeah. is, is the centre of it. Anyway, her husband takes her around the town blindfolded and then he he takes her and there's another shop that he's got, he, he's created, which is the second bar, and she says, oh, I'm a chain! <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> no, I haven't seen that. It's a love. Oh, and if you do, make sure you've got boxes and boxes of tissues. Oh, and no. It is the saddest film going, but <laughs> it's a fantastic film. But uh, Parton, Dolly Parton's having a moment at the moment because she gave a lot of money to the promotion of a vaccine, a COVID vaccine as well. Did she? Yeah, so she's she's doing oh. lots, but just shows you that it doesn't matter how old you are, there's still lots you can give and do yeah. and be different yeah. and aspire exactly. to. And of course, if she, if she was British, she'd probably become Dame Polly, uh, Dame, Dame Dolly, in fact, rather. <laughs> or Dame Polly Darton, yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> this is River Radio and you're listening to Turning Pages with Heather and Julian. Thank you for listening. Coming up, we'll be talking to Tilly Brogan about her love for young adult and fantasy novels. And this is the start of a new series which we're going to run every month. And it's going to be Tilly's YA fiction addiction. But first, I've been chatting to Paul Olivson Stop, who's a film producer and author whose book Atta Girls um, has just been published about a small group of young women of the Air Transport Auxiliary team. And they take to the skies to do their bit in World War II. And the ATA, of course, was based in White Waltham, just outside Maidenhead. So we have already spoken to Paul about the book specifically, but I always find it interesting to understand what books have inspired an author. So let's listen to, um, to Paul's choice. So you're both a writer, an author and a film producer, and both have storytelling at their heart. So how do they differ? Or do they? Uh, well... They they don't actually, not really, because at the end of the day, everyone wants a lovely story, everyone wants a wonderful ending, and, and the same rules apply to both. But I suppose with a book, with a novel, it's up to the imagination of the reader to conjure up the images and the characters and and to set the scene and the and everything. You know, it, it it's imagination dependent. But with a film, you have to basically do that job too. You know, so not only tell the story, but really visualise for the audience. So there is a kind of a difference in that way. It's a lot more work, but the basics are the same. Yes, I can see that. Sometimes you have a book and it creates that film in your in your imagination because it's so vivid and you can see the characters pop up to life, can't you? Yeah. So were you always a reader and what were your favourite books as a child? Always been a reader and always read 20th century history, always, and mostly factual books. I read about history itself and 20th century, and, and I've always loved immersing myself in a book. But but novels, I, I love, there are a few authors that really I adore, and if I'm going to read a novel, it would generally be one of a very limited number of authors. Otherwise, it would be a book about you know, historical facts. And so <laughs> yeah. who, who are those authors that you're, you're reading? Uh, well, well, I suppose my favourites are uh, P.G. Wodehouse. I love oh, yes. I love the Wodehouse humour and a great uh, comic writer, the greatest of the 20th century, perhaps. You know, the Jeeves and Worcester series, the Blandings Castle series. Very, very funny. And, of course, Jane Austen. I love Jane Austen. Pride and Prejudice, the Emma Mansfield Park, and how I, I love. Uh, actually, it's interesting there because Jane Austen's books are probably, well, they definitely are very different to my novel because Jane's plots often explore the dependence of women on marriage in the pursuit of a favourable social standing or any economic security. Whereas Atta Girls is all no, I'm just going to go out there do it for myself and just get it so there's a big difference there but i do love jane austen novels evelyn moore i love evelyn moore 
Brideshead, of course, Brideshead Revisited, Decline and Fall, some of some of the books he wrote that were based on his own experiences. Vile Bodies, that was another favourite, and satires the bright young things um, of the day. And, of course, um, Nancy Mitford, one of my ah. great favourites, because, interestingly, and I drew, a, I drew a lot out of all of these novels and all of these writers when I wrote Atta Girls. And if you read through, you can see little pieces that would resemble writings from the, these particular authors. But with, with Nancy Mitford and The Pursuit of Love or Love in a Cold Climate, he, the camaraderie between those girls, the Mitford sisters, was very. It was very symbolic, and I love their closeness. and And I drew a lot on that too when I thought about the girls in the ETA. Uh, so I thought you were going to say when you were saying you love historical books, you're going to say yeah. C.S. Forrester and Bernard Cornwell and uh, those sort of or are those ones that you read and enjoy oh <laughs> fabulous yeah, like, i like that uh, <laughs> no um, what are you reading yeah. at the moment what am i reading at the moment well to be perfectly honest i haven't picked up a book for a while well, that's um, fine and they, because i've been so busy with my own book and and you know, the launch and but the last book i read was a, was a spy novel a uh, spy novel emma sorry not a, a novel a true story about during the cold war uh-huh. I've read a few of those recently, and I've I've just picked up a book about the Duke of Windsor and Wallace Simpson and their time just after the Second World War about the you know the accusations that were thrown around about their involvement. Very interesting. So, yeah, any uh, yeah, very much so. So any anything to do with the Duke of Windsor or or you know the, the Mitfords, I've probably read everything I can get my hands on. So a few films in there somewhere yeah. i'm sure that's all the time you're looking for inspiration aren't you with everything that you see and you do you think what? um, what's the idea from that so what advice would you yes. give someone who's looking to write their own book now that you've finished your book and you've it's going to be on the bookshelves which is the most exciting part i always think of authoring a book is seeing it in the in the bookshelves so what's what's your advice that you're going to give someone who's about to write a book well, I would say that well, there's there's at least one book in everyone. They say, isn't that true? They, that's, uh, I hope that's. Not true. I would say that two things really. I mean, when considering the audience, that's the big thing. Who's going to read it? It's the same as producing a film. Will there be an audience? You know, is this book? Would it be of interest to a particular market or a particular group? And that's often the commercial thinking. You know, if you want to, you want to write a book for a commercial purpose. But if it's just a, a lifelong goal, and you know, it's a story one wants to tell about their family. A friend of mine has just written a book about his time in, in growing up in South Africa. Very much a personal book that he doesn't even want to actually get published. He just wants to write a book. Um, so I, I would say it depends on entirely on the on the uh, on the objectives really of the individual author. Yeah. Right. My my one of my best friends her father wrote a book a history of his family to give to his uh, first grandchild which I always thought was the most fantastic christening present. I mean obviously as a child yeah. he's not going to be interested but when he's sort of 20 30 he is absolutely going to adore that uh, that book and I always thought that was a lovely yeah. a lovely it's idea. A lovely idea. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Right. Well, good luck with Atta Girls. I am absolutely confident it'll do really well because it's a great story and based on such an exciting period of time that we don't really know about. Thank you very much for the uh, opportunity to oh, chat. 
My pleasure. Well, I think that was a great um, selection of, uh, of books. Um, was, uh, yes. Very enjoyable reads. And, and what I really like is that they weren't all highfalutin ones. You know, there was actually Evelyn Waugh, who's, you know, one of my favourite authors. Yes. Uh, and he touched on one, which is, which is, I think, one of his all-time greats, in my opinion, which is Vile Bodies, because they're just so many amazing characters. And I must admit, I can't quite remember if the heroine is called Margot, but she goes around, which is everything, oh, it's too, too sick-making, uh, is one of her expressions. <laughs> And I think there's one, and I think it's in, in Vile Bodies, because um, somehow I think there's some Lord has an estate. And, and anyway, so somebody arrives in an aeroplane yes. across, across his land and he comes in and he says, there's an outrage on my lawn. <laughs> and they're just fantastic characters. So it's really nice Brilliant. that, um, that he, he, he picked those books. Excellent, excellent. So um, all books are, of course, fantasy. They're made up wells, which the various characters inhabit. Even non-fiction books are representation of what we think really happened, because, of course, we Mm. all have our own truths. But one area which we haven't really covered as um, in the show so far is actually fantasy books. Mm. So to remedy this, we've asked Tilly Brogan to join the team. And each month she'll be joining us to cover a book or a series in a special section of the show called Tilly's YA Fiction Addiction, which is also the name of her bus, uh, bookagram, bus, bookstagram, bookstagram, I think that's right. how you say it. So to start off the series, I want to catch up with Tilly to find out what she enjoys in particular and why. Let's listen to what she had to say. Tilly, thank you very much for joining me this morning. No problem. I'm really excited to to talk about this. Excellent. So I'm going to call you a book influencer. So uh, tell me, what do you do? What are your channels for enthusing people about books? So I would also say content creator since I'm mainly on Instagram at the moment, but I did have a booktube channel, but I will review books i'll make posts i'll do reels like small videos i'll do live videos and chat to people other people on bookstagram that like to read ya so yeah just constantly talking about books 24 7 i guess is how to describe it so what do you specialize in so you say young adult is that fantasy or or is that two different sections do you reckon I think young adult is the umbrella term, but you can have like young adult fantasy. Obviously, uh, Yopia was all the rage back in 2013, 2012. That was things like The Hunger Games, Maze Runner, Divergent. But I think there's been a big shift in YA in young adult fiction towards more fantasy books. And the genre has just exploded since then. And there's also NA, which is new adult, which is slightly older. So sort of YA, but with more sexualized themes, which is a sort of subcategory. So anything under that umbrella, I love to read and talk about. Now, much as I'd like to think of myself as very young, I probably wouldn't categorise myself as young adults. <laughs> Me neither, don't worry. I'm 23. I definitely, I feel like it is primarily age aimed at younger people. But I think if you enjoy it, read what you want to read. And I've met so many people my age and one of my best friends reads YA still and she's 23. So I think if you enjoy fantasy and you enjoy dystopia, just read whatever you want to read. It's not harming anyone. Exactly. Because I think a good book's a good book. Oh, 100%, yeah. It's got nothing to do with age. Yeah, I agree. So what, uh, were you always a reader? 
Yeah, I've always read since I was younger. My parents took me to the library after school. I think they were big influencers in that area. And I think when I was about 13, 14, that was when I started to read YA and I was reading things like The Hunger Games. Me and my best friend went to see all the movies together. But then I went to university and as you can imagine, other things got in the way. There wasn't as much time for reading. I also did English literature at uni, so I actually had to read the syllabus books instead of (laughs) all these YA fantasy books. So I sort of stopped reading for three to four years. And then in my final year of uni and over the pandemic, I just started reading YA again and realised how much I used to enjoy it and how much I love the genre. So what is it that appeals to you so much? Many things. I feel like YA is pure escapism because, like you say, it's fantasy, it's dystopian. I find quite a lot of the adult books are, oh, here's a 20-something-year-old navigating a big city, navigating love life and friends. And that's what I'm doing at the moment. I don't want to read about that. Like, (laughs) I'm struggling enough as it is. I don't need to read anyone else struggling, whereas YA is just pure escapism, these fantasy worlds, dystopias. I think you can just really get lost in it and forget about the world, which is exactly what we needed over the last year, for sure. You're absolutely right. So has that period of time changed how you read? I think because when I graduated, I didn't have a job yet. I was just working part time in a supermarket. So I had a lot more time to read and to think about books. And there's a whole online community, which is the YouTube community, the Instagram community. And I think talking about books, but rather than talking about academic books at uni, but talking about books that I actually enjoy reading just adds a whole new layer to it. And I think it's just so fun to discuss books that you actually enjoy reading, discuss the characters, the world. I just think it, it did change how I how I read and it gave me a lot more time to do things that I actually want to do. And I think a lot of people in the pandemic realised that they have these hobbies that some people used to say they should be ashamed of, but they shouldn't. And they had no guilt surrounding them anymore. And I think people just took up reading again. I've got to say, to me, reading is always about enjoying a book. And if you're not... Definitely. There are so many books out there that if you're reading one that is really heavy going, just put it to one side. Exactly, and yeah. another one up. There's so many yeah. to choose from, isn't there? But, but with YA, it's just, it's impossible to put down. It's such a great genre. Okay, so what are going to be your favourite YA series then? Oh, that's a good question. I think the Shadowhunter series by Cassandra Clare has a special place in my heart because that was what I used to read when I was younger. And those are the first books I picked up again in my final year of university. And she still writes the books. She's still writing books in that world. So it was nice just to get new content and to rediscover my old faith. I just think she's a great writer. I, I don't want to go too much into the book. But yeah, there's about 18 different books in the oh, world. Wow. And they're all, all, they're all set in different, different times. There's one set in Victorian London, one set in modern New York, one set in LA. And I just think she's really good at world building. But it is a it is a hefty series to start with, for sure. Excellent. So obviously, I think most people will know the Hunger Games. Which, yes, for sure. Yeah, which is brilliant. I've got to say, it was brilliant. So yeah. What, what do you think about young adult old fantasy um, books being turned into films? Oh, it's really difficult because everyone when you when you read a book, you have a you know a set idea of what the characters look like, and I think the Hunger Games, I would say 
is one of the only adaptations that is done perfectly. And again, there are still some flaws in the movie, but compared to the other ones, I think it was done really, really well. The recent Shadow and Bone adaptation on Netflix. So Shadow and is a YA series as well that I really, really enjoy. That was done amazingly. And what I really liked was the author. She didn't have a lot of diversity in the books. And so she set out to add more diversity um, in the adaptation and she cast people that would reflect that, which I thought was amazing. And I think that really reflected how the genre has grown because picking up these books again after four years, it's just exploded. There's so much more representation of sexuality and of race, which is just amazing to see your favourite genre mature like that. So yeah, I think adaptations are great. I think it's difficult to please every single fan in the fandom and to have this accurate representation of what these characters look like. But yeah, overall, I think they're a nice way to bring it to life. Right, okay. So and a way to introduce you into the characters if, you, if you're not. Yeah, sure. definitely. If you don't like books, I mean, I always say read the book first, but <laughs> that's just me. But I'm not I'm not going to shame you if you want to, you know, I think the Shadow and Bone series is is great and they cast the the actors perfectly. So if you want to watch the TV show before the books, I would highly recommend that as well. But I agree with you. Always books first. <laughs> so what have you got by your bedside at the moment? What are you reading? Oh, I'm reading The Priory of the Orange Tree, which I started last night. It's a sort of like feminist Lord of the Rings with set in this huge kingdom. And there's an East and a West. And it's just like a queendom, actually. I think it's all women in it. And there's dragons. And it's really hard to explain. There was no blurb when I picked it up. But everyone was just saying, you should read this book. You should read this book. It's like a big fantasy kingdom battle book i really don't know how else to explain it i've just started it as well fantastic and who's the author of samantha shannon right so there's no blurb associated with the book how did are you reading it on kindle no um on the back it literally just says queendom without an heir an old enemy awakens and then it just has all the reviews for the book and i was Ah. like six six words to really intrigue me here Uh. yeah it's really good so far and everyone i've spoken to has really recommended it so fantastic because that's the thing is uh it's recommendation isn't it word of mouth well, that, that's the whole of Bookstagram is just people saying, read this and then read this. And if you liked this, you should read this. And I think it's just a great place to share your thoughts about the books, but also to get recommendations and to help other people if they're struggling, if they're in like a reading slump. Like, here's this book. This will get you back into reading. This is exactly what you need right now. So before you were writing about books on a website called the tempest there was different categories there was like current affairs fashion the world and yeah they let me write about ya books which is really really good so i wrote about toxic relationships in ya books which is a whole subcategory there's many toxic relationships in these books people need to be aware of i was writing a lot about why i was writing about representation in fan art as well so quite a lot of people i follow on bookstagram are artists and they bring these characters to life which is just amazing to see but there's quite a few issues surrounding some of this art sort of representation like skin color also small things like giving all these characters like a small upturned nose rather than just normal you know more representation noses is what i'm saying in terms of skin color and just facial features i was writing about if an author gives their characters representation or they're known for looking not the stereotype that should be reflected in fan art as well and i was just sort of bringing this up as an issue that the art should be as diverse as the book itself is my point 
So one of the articles I was reading in The Tempest of Yours was all about how the heroines of the books inspire you to do Keep Fit for a Oh, book. yeah, I wrote, that was yeah. a fabulous article. So tell, tell me that. about that. So I've always had a, I mean, most people my age have said they've always had an, an interesting relationship with their body. I feel like it's just part of, part of growing up. But reading Divergent, I think, was the book that really inspired me. And obviously the main character, Triss, she has to train for these factions and train to be initiated. And it just made me realise that women could work out for fun. There wasn't, I think there's a whole diet culture associated with female health, how women should just exercise to lose weight. But these books, even Katniss from the Hunger Games doing the, the archery and obviously training for the games, they you know, showed me that you don't have to exercise to lose weight. You can exercise because you enjoy it. And I started running when I was younger. And obviously the Shadow Hunter series is just about a group of people who are descended from warriors and just work out and fight demons. So it just inspired me to, you know, there's no shame in working out and enjoying it. It just gave me a whole new mindset to fitness. I love the way that books can inspire us to be our better selves in a way, to show us yeah. how we can be. It's weird how people think YA books are for younger readers, but they cover all these themes. They've got, you know, representation. They cover like lots of diversity as well. And then there are things like, well, they can inspire you to do things that you didn't realise you wanted to do. And now we're both off to the gym. So I think Yes, we are. Yeah, <laughs> it definitely inspired us for sure. So do you want to give a shout out to the Bookstagram account? Yes. So it's called My YA Fiction Addiction. All just one word, YA as in the two letters. But if you want to follow me on there and feel free to message me if you want any recommendations or if you've got any recommendations for me as well, that would be much appreciated. But come chat to me about YA. I would, I would absolutely love it. Fantastic. That is great. So that's my YA fiction, fiction addiction. addiction. Like the rhyme. Tilly, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for having me. So we'll be having Tilly along every month. So if you do have any ideas or any thoughts or favourite books in the fantasy YA world, do get in touch with her on her um, Instagram, her bookstagram account. So we're going to take a trip down to the seaside now. And whenever we think about the seaside, my thoughts always go towards Jaws by Peter Benchley. Exactly. I've, I've only seen that on film. I haven't actually read the book, so I, no, we're not going to cover that one. And then, of course, there's Brighton Rock by Graham Greene, but that's one oh, we've yes. already covered. Yes, Although really. um, I'm still going to recommend it. And there must be something about Brighton, as we've had a fabulous recommendation by a listener, Kate Hull, who recommends a series of comedy cosy crime novels by Lynn Truss. Do you remember she did Eat, Shoots and Leaves? Um, yeah, but also, but also, isn't she the trade minister as well? No, not not that Lintrust, no. This is the, the comedy author. Anyway, right. it's a fabulous book. It's based in Brighton. And um, after the notorious Middle Street Massacre of eight, 1951, the majority of Brighton's criminals were wiped out in a vicious battle. And so the policemen in Brighton thought they were going to have a pretty enjoyable time with no criminals, no crime and no stress until, of course, a rather annoying and ambition, ambitious, not to mention irritating Constable Twitten shows up to work and a vicious theatre critic is promptly murdered partway through the opening night of a new play. So there are four books in the series and the latest one has just been published in June this year called Psycho by the Sea and they look fabulous fun.
I mean, they they, they, they actually do sound really interesting. They do. Well, they uh, sound a, great. A super recommendation, yeah. Kate. Thanks very much. So I've but I've gone and I've gone for a bit of classic crime to start off with, and I've pulled one of my favourite books off the uh, off the bookshelf that I want to recommend, which is Evil Under the Sun by Agatha oh, yeah. Christie. Now we all want a quiet summer holiday in the sun, and this is exactly what Hercule Poirot anticipates when he books a week in a secluded hotel in Devon. And a beautiful and vain woman who's also staying at the hotel is found murdered. And there are a number of people who are likely suspects. So we've got a luxury summer hotel. We've got a closed circle setting. The victim as a man-mad red-headed actress and Poirot in white trousers. What is there not to like? A fantastic cocktail of a story. Exactly. Let's hear a short reading from the start of the book. Evil Under the Sun by Agatha Christie When Captain Roger Anring built himself a house in the year 1782 on the island off Leathercombe Bay, it was thought the height of eccentricity on his part. A man of good family such as he was should have had a decorous mansion set in wide meadows with, perhaps, a running stream and good pasture. But Captain Roger Anring had only one great love, the sea. So he built his house, a sturdy house too, as it needed to be, on the little windswept gull-haunted promontory, cut off from land at each high tide. In 1922, when the great cult of the seaside for holidays was finally established, and the coast of Devon and Cornwall was no longer thought too hot in the summer, Arthur Anmering found his vast inconvenient late Georgian house unsaleable. But he got a good price for the odd bit of property acquired by the seafaring captain. The sturdy house was added to and embellished. A concrete causeway was laid down from the mainland to the island. Walks and nooks were cut and devised all round the island. There were two tennis courts, sun terraces leading down to the little bay, embellished with rafts and diving boards. The Jolly Roger Hotel, Smuggler's Island, Leathercombe Bay, came triumphantly into being. It was enlarged and improved in 1934 by the addition of a cocktail bar, a bigger dining room and some extra bathrooms. The prices went up. People said, ever been to Leathercombe Bay? Awfully jolly hotel there, on a sort of island. Very comfortable and no trippers or shadowbangs. Good cooking and all that. You ought to go. And people did go. There was one very important person, in his own estimation at least, staying at the Jolly Roger this summer. Hercule Poirot, resplendent in white duck suit, with a Panama hat tilted over his eyes, his moustaches magnificently befurled, lay back in an improved type of deck chair and surveyed the bathing beach. A woman came down past them from the hotel to the beach. Her arrival had all the importance of a stage entrance. Moreover, she walked as though she knew it. There was no self-consciousness apparent. It was seen that she was used to the invariable effect her presence produced. She was tall and slender. She wore a simple backless white bathing dress and every inch of her exposed body was tanned a beautiful even shade of bronze. She was as perfect as a statue. Her hair was as rich flaming auburn curling richly and intimately into her neck. Her face had that slight hardness which is seen when thirty years have come and gone. But the whole effect of her was one of youth, of superb and triumphant vitality. There was that about her which made every other woman on the beach seem faded and insignificant. 
and with equal inevitability, the eye of every male present was drawn and riveted on her. The eyes of Hercule Poirot opened, his moustache quivered appreciatively. Major Barry sat up, and his protuberant eyes bulged even farther with excitement. On Poirot's left, the Reverend Stephen Lay drew in his breath with a little hiss, and his figure stiffened. Major Barry said in a hoarse whisper, Arlena Stewart, that's who she was before she married Marshall. I saw her in come and go before she left the stage. That's great setup, isn't it? It is. So I love that idea that Devon and Cornwall might have been thought too hot in the summer. <laughs> I know, it's extraordinary, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, for that thought. Indeed. Anyway, the great thing about Dame Agatha, of course, is the way that she leads us all down the lane with first one obvious culprit and then another. And when it was uh, published back in 1941, the the Times Literary su- Supplement wrote a review and it said, Miss Christie cast the shadow of guilt upon the first one and then another with such casual ease that it's difficult for the reader not to be led by the nose. Everybody is well aware that any character most strongly indicated is not a likely criminal, yet this guiding principle is forgotten when Miss Christie persuades you that you are more discerning than you really are. And then she springs her secret like a landmine. Mm, excellent fabulous <laughs> and as we know it's been adapted into a film with diana rigg playing the ill-fated arlena marshall and with peter usenoff playing poirot now on that film though there's a slight variation oh yes in fact the hotel is um run by maggie smith but it's actually set um on an adriatic island rather oh, than is it? Uh, yes it's very interesting um it's on an adriatic island because um maggie smith was was the mistress of the king and he'd given it to her but the david suchet one which i think you were going to mention the yes. tv series yes. they actually do use the berg island hotel so that's the david suchet television one is the is the genuine hotel and it looks a fabulous hotel, oh it does fantastic it? yeah superb art deco yeah. yeah absolutely and of course with the dave suchet's um program they've actually changed the plot slightly and to get Miss Lemon and Hastings and there's slight right, changes yes, you get to them it. all in yes yeah <laughs> okay right so what's your next book uh, well, um, uh, I'm, I'm going to talk uh, about death in Venice but oh, we've okay. got a little bit of a, a reading oh, yes. um, beforehand let's do that death in Venice by Thomas Mann. And with that, he went on from one thing to another, his enthusiasm waxing with each new idea. Aschenbach sat there comfortably. He was incapable of objecting to the process. Rather, as it went forward, it roused his hopes. He watched it in the mirror and saw his eyebrows grow more even and arching. The eyes gain in size and brilliance by dint of a little application below the lids. A delicate carmine glowed on his cheeks where the skin had been so brown and leathery. The dry, anemic lips grew full. They turned the colour of ripe strawberries. The lines round eyes and mouth were treated with a facial cream and gave place to youthful bloom. It was a young man who looked back at him from the glass. Aschenbach's heart leapt at the sight. The artist in cosmetic at last professed himself satisfied. After the manner of such people, he thanked his client profusely for what he had done himself. The merest trifle, the merest signore, he said as he added the final touches. Now the signore can fall in love as soon as he likes. 
Aschenbach went off in a dream, days between joy and fear, in his red necktie and broad straw hat with its gay striped band. A lukewarm storm wind had come up. It rained a little now and then. The air was heavy and turbid and smelt of decay. Aschenbach, with fevered cheeks beneath the rouge, seemed to hear rushing and flapping sounds in his ears as though storm spirits were abroad, unhallowed ocean harpies who followed those devoted to destruction, snatch away and defile their viands. For the heat took away his appetite, and thus he was haunted with the idea that his food was infected. One afternoon he pursued his charmer deep into the stricken city's huddled heart. The labyrinthine little streets, squares, canals and bridges, each one so like the next, at length quite made him lose his bearings. He did not even know the points of the compass. All his care was not to lose sight of the figure after which his eyes thirsted. He slunk under walls, he lurked behind buildings or people's backs, and the sustained tension of his senses and emotions exhausted him more and more, though for a long time he was unconscious of fatigue. Tadzio walked behind the others, he let them pass ahead in the narrow alleys, and as he sauntered slowly after, he would turn his head and assure himself with a glance of his strange twilight grey eyes that his lover was still following. He saw him, and he did not betray him. The knowledge enraptured Aschenbach, lured by those eyes, led on the leading string of his own passion and folly, Utterly lovesick, he stole upon the footsteps of his unseemly hope, and at the end found himself cheated. The Polish family crossed a small vaulted bridge, the height of whose archway hid them from his sight, and when he climbed it himself, they were nowhere to be seen. He hunted in three directions, straight ahead and on both sides the narrow, dirty quay in vain. Worn quite out and unnerved, he had to give over the search. Well, The Death of Venice was written by Thomas Mann and it was published in 1912 under the German title Der Tod in Venedig. And it's a, quite a slim volume. Um, in fact, it's a novella. And uh, Thomas Mann wrote it when he visited Venice himself in 1911. Which is and such a, a beautiful pardon? city. It's such a beautiful city, isn't it, Venice? Uh, absolutely, yes. And, 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 and to have such a story of passion um, uh, in that city and in the surroundings, very atmospheric. Yes. And it is a story of obsession and unrequited love. And actually, it's probably Probably very daring when you think that um, it was published only 17 years after the trial of Oscar Wilde. Ah, yes. Mm. Now, the principal character of the story is, is Gustav von Aschenbach, a famous author who's recently been ennobled by his country in recognition of his literary achievements, thus allowing him to insert the aristocratic von into his surname. And he's a man in his early 50s, dedicated to his art, and he's a widower. Now, after his um, uh, ennoblement and, and being lionized, Aschenbach decided to take a holiday. Um, uh, but after a false start uh, in Pula, he decides that he's meant to go to Venice, where he takes a suite at the Hotel de, de Ban in the Lido. Now, whilst on the, on the boat, on the ship travelling to Venice, he sees an older man in the company of youths. However, the man is grotesquely sporting a wig. He has false teeth and makeup <laughs> uh, to try and make himself look younger in the company of these other young boys, which von Aschenbach finds abhorrent. Um, though, of course, as we've heard from the reading, um, he, he succumbs to that himself, yes. where he wants to make himself beautiful um, for 
his young um, boy that he sees. Aschenbach checks into the hotel <clears throat> where at dinner he noticed an aristocratic Polish family at the Asian table, and it includes an incredibly beautiful adolescent boy uh, of the about the age of 14 who's wearing a sailor suit. And Aschenbach gazes upon this um, boy as the perfect embodiment of Greek sculpture. Gosh, this um, is racy. Yeah, well, well, yes, really, honestly. Um, whilst, but the interesting at this, at this point, it's sort of, um, it's almost like a fatherly interest, even though he has no children of his own. But whilst taking the air along the beach, Aschenbach spies the family, manages to overhear the name of the boy, and it's Tadzio. And this he conceives of what he first interprets as an uplifting artistic interest. However, the weather in Venice is getting really hot and humid and it's starting to affect Aschenbach's health and he decides he's going to return home. Um, but when his luggage is um, mislaid on the way to the railway station, um, he feigns anger that it's been mis- misplaced. And, but, um, but he takes this as an omen that um, he should return to the hotel, which he does joyfully. But over the next few days and weeks, his interest in the beautiful Tadzio becomes an obsession. Um, Aschenbach watches Tadzio constantly secretly follows him about Venice, as, as, as we've heard um, in, the, in the reading. But one evening he was rewarded when Tazio directs a very charming and warm smile to him, which causes Aschenbach to blush and rush into a nearby empty garden to whisper out loud, I love you. But the dark clouds are gathering um, when discreet um, uh, public health notices are being posted around the city for an unspecified contagion. And whilst the city council tries to play down what the contagion that it's not serious, it is in fact cholera. And a few days later, Aschenbach finds himself in the hotel lobby feeling quite ill and weak and discovers that the Polish family are going to leave Venice after lunch. So he goes to the beach and sits in his usual chair where he sees Tadzio in the company of an older boy. A fight breaks out between the two boys and Tadzio is quickly bested and angrily wades over to Aschenbach's part of the beach where he looks out to sea before turning halfway round to look to his admirer. And it seems to, uh, to Aschenbach that Tadzio is beckoning to him and he starts to rise from his chair to follow Tadzio before he collapses back into the chair. And it's some time, a few minutes later, when he's discovered and, you know, he's oh, died. Have you just, you're spoiler alert there. <laughs> yeah, spoiler alert. <laughs> That's terrible. That's Yeah, but, but an amazing love story. Incredible. I, in, in that respect. Yes. Yeah, and yeah. as you quite rightly said, you've got... Venice is so romantic, isn't it? Mm, um, yes. So that really sort of the architecture weaves into that whole atmosphere mm. of um, unrequited love exactly. and passion. And in and... fact, if anybody's a bit concerned about it, I mean, nothing has gone on, of course. It's all it's all very much um, at a distance and yes. so on. It's his admiration. But it's quite a, an amazing story. And of course, interestingly, that both you and I have actually chosen seaside stories with death in it. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Well, of course, when you're on holiday, you just want a bit of escapism you where do. everything's sorted. So I've also gone for a love story for my next one. And I've moved over to the Caribbean. And oh, I'm going lovely. to talk about The Mermaid of Black Conch by Monique Rofi. And it won the Costa Book of the Year Award last year, just as the pandemic was hitting. So just a really bad time to win such a prestigious award. And um, the award is renowned for choosing immensely readable books. So... <coughs> 
uh, the Mermaid of Black Conch is a worthy winner and I would encourage people to uh, to rush out and buy a copy if you haven't already. It's set in a tiny Caribbean village in the 1970s and there's a charming romance between a fisherman, David, who lazily awaits his catch and he snares a centuries-old mermaid who'd been cursed by women jealous of her beauty. Now she's drawn to the sound of the guitar that David's strumming and he wonders if he He's been smoking too many spliffs. <laughs> and uh, the bittersweet plot kicks in when their regular secret meetings are brought to an end by a couple of Americans, Thomas and Hank, a Florida father and son, are trawling the inland waters in the hope of bagging a first prize in a fishing contest. Now, suddenly, they get hold of our mermaid and they're thinking big. A sail to the Smithsonian, the cover of time but they don't reckon on David's plan to rescue her. So the beauty of the book is the development between these mythical goings-on with pin-sharp detail from the real world as she hides away in David's bedroom and navigates the perils and pleasures on life on land as she turns into a real woman. So a riff on Pygmalion. Ah. Um, and it's published by People Press, which is a small independent publisher. So it's really fantastic that not only Rofi, but also People Press are actually having a huge success on their hand. Lovely. Yeah. Excellent. So your final book then, Jules. Yes. Well, this I, I've chosen as my si- final one is The Shell Seekers by Rosamund Pilcher, which was published in 1987 by Coronet Books, yeah. which is an imprint of Hodder and Stoughton. And um, the story of The Shell Seekers is told near the end of uh, Penelope healing's life um, and she's reflecting on her life and re- relationships after she suffered a mild heart attack uh, and she thinks back to a Cornish seaside town called Porthcarris where she had lived during the Second World War <clears throat> pardon me but um, Penelope discharges herself from the hospital and she returns home and she resolves to return to Porthcarris um, which has all the fond memories and that's in fact where she met her husband and the father of her children now she asks her three now adult children mm-hmm. Olivia, Noel and Nancy to accompany her but all three of them you know typically come up with excuses of one sort or another why they don't want to go so penelope invites antonia who is the daughter of cosmo whom olivia one of the daughters was in love with before he died now we're not too sure if antonia is the daughter but anyway in so doing penelope thinks that she's put an end to nancy's carping on that she penelope should really have a carer um and so that takes care of that. And then, then Penelope asks her gardener, Danis, to join them. Now, the story is interweaved with the works of art made by Penelope's famous artist father, Lawrence Stern. His star, no pun intended there, began to fade in the firmament of great artists after his death. But now his paintings have come back into fashion. And on top of that, commanding very handsome prices. Um, Now, Penelope has three works in her possession, two um, incomplete works and the famous one, which is The Shell Seekers Mm -hmm. of the uh, book's name. Now, she's pressured into selling some of the pictures by Noel and Nancy, but she first refuses. But in the end, she actually sells one of the incomplete works to a dealer for £100,000, which she uses to fund the trip to Porthcarris and it allows the three of them um, to stay in the lavish and expensive Sands Hotel. Excellent. But of course, uh, two of the children are greedy and selfish. That's Noah and Nancy. They berate their mother for squandering the family fortune, which in fact is, is shorthand for they think it's their money. Um, anyway, so <laughs> she even makes them more furious because she then donates the very valuables um, shell seekers to the Porthcarris Art um, Museum, Excellent. which her father had founded. Well done. 
fun. <laughs> which is actually fantastic. So it's up yours, Dolores, in a way. Um, and then, but when when they come back from Porth Keris, Antonia moves in with Penelope as the carer. Uh, that takes her there. But one evening, Penelope um, has a sleepless night, so she goes into the garden and suffers another heart attack. And and this is not a spoiler because it's not the end of the story. But as as she just before she dies, she actually sees um, the vision of her husband come towards, and she and she, oh, she dies. Oh, that's nice. But it isn't the end of the story. There's much more to it because then we have to go into what happens after the will is read and there's some more hijinks going on there and then what happens to two of the characters as they start a new life together so you've got to read the shell seekers if you haven't already if you want to know what's what happens at the very end excellent right well um one the one more thing we've got um but just to remind you in case you've all forgotten you are listening to river radio the voice of the thames valley and don't forget i keep repeating we do want to hear from you so if you have any favorite authors any favorite books you're running uh, a book club or you're a local bookseller or an author please do get in touch and you can contact me on julian at river.radio with any tidbits of news that you've got which we would like to share with our listeners. That's fantastic. So our hour is almost up. So a oh, very is it, really? it is indeed. So a very big thank you to everyone for listening. We really appreciate it. And thanks also to author Paul Olivson Stab, whose book Atta Girls is out now. And Tilly Brogan, our new uh compatriot. Yes, colleague, yes, colleague. colleague. and is yes. uh, she'll be doing Tilly's YA fiction addiction. Which just we should say YA is young adults. It is indeed. Yeah. yeah. So other books we've been recommending today are Through the Looking Glass, The Spectacular Life of Spectacles by Travis Elbra and published by Little Brown. Uh, one that we've snuck in is Jeeves and Worcester by P.G. Woodhouse, uh, which is published by Hutchinson, and also um, Vile Bodies by um, Evelyn War, published by Penguin. Yes, and Brideshead Visited by Evelyn War, published by Penguin as well. And then we've got The Shadow Hunters by Sarayas. Uh, I beg your pardon, Shadow Hunters Sarayas by Cassandra Clare, published by Walker Books. Priory of the Orange Tree by Samantha Shannon, published by Bloomsbury. A Shot in the Dark and Psycho by the Sea by Lynn Trust, published by Bloomsbury. Evil Under the Sun by Agatha Christie, published by HarperCollins. Death in Venice by Thomas Mann, published by Penguin. And The Mermaid of Black Conch by Monique Roffey, published by People Press. And The Shell Seekers by Rosamund Pilcher, published by Coronet. Next week, we'll be chatting with Harriet Reed Ryan, um, who will be talking about the fiction authors scheduled for the Henley Literary Festival, which is on between October the 2nd and the 10th at Henley. We look forward to you joining us next Wednesday between 11 and 12 noon on River Radio. And if you're not able to join us when, uh, then, then you can listen again directly from our website. And Turning Pages on River Radio is also available as a podcast. Goodbye.
Windsor, Ascot, Maidenhead, Bracknell, Wokingham, Henley, Reading. The voice River Radio of the Thames Valley. Across the Thames Valley. This is River Radio News.